This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Donald Trump's Florida home was searched by the FBI earlier this week, and though the precise reasons aren't totally clear, it's worth considering the pros and cons of establishing the norm of charging former presidents with crimes, even in cases when it's clear the crimes occurred. Cato's Walter Olson has thought long and hard about it. We spoke last week before the FBI made its move. I remember Donald Trump in a late in a debate in 2016, suggesting to Hillary Clinton that she ought to be in jail. And, you know, after January 6, 2021, there were a lot of people on the left and some on the right who were arguing, well, Donald Trump ought to be in jail. He ought to be arrested and charged for the misconduct, the maladministration over and above impeachment and removal and disqualification from high office, that he deserved to be imprisoned for his conduct. Now, I guess I want to, there is at least evidence regarding January 5th, that's right, January 5th, the president engaged in a, in a phone call with the Secretary of State of Georgia, in which he seemed to strongly imply that, hey, you don't go out there and find me 12,000, I think, votes, you might be in some trouble there, bud. It's, you know, nice office you have there. Be a shame if something happened to it. That was at least my takeaway. And uh, Brad Raffensperger resisted. There was a, a prominent uh, campaign attorney who was on the call who lost her job over essentially just being on that call. And, and so I wondered when impeachment proceedings came forward uh, shortly after January 6th, that why wasn't that part of the discussion? And uh, uh, that, that, that's not really what we're talking about. But I do want to want to say that it, it, there's at least a reasonable case to say, well, this was a felony in Georgia. You've raised several questions at once there. And, <laughs> uh, and of course, one uh, which is not our topic for today, is, is what is an impeachable offense as opposed to what is uh, a crime. A second one, uh, which again, we will probably not spend too much time on, is how should we discuss the possible crimes of people, you know, on, on the other side of, of, of political elections? Should we do it, you know, in the old school way of saying, you know, I think there is disturbing evidence here and I hope that the law, you know, f fully works itself out versus throw her in jail or lock him up or whatever. And as you can imagine, I think there was a lot of merit in the old school view that you don't express relish or zeal about the prosecution of your political opponents. You try to bear in mind that it would be a tragedy for the country if they had committed a crime and that they, like all defendants, you know, deserve a chance to put out their case and, and we should not prejudge. All of those sorts of things, which totally went out the window on more than one occasion of people demanding the imprisonment of their opponents. But then you get to this issue, which is kind of special to the uh, topic of presidential administrations, which is, in what sense is it different when a new when a new administration uh, thinks about prosecuting an old? What issues come up there that are not in play when, let's say, the feds indict another Illinois governor? I don't know whether they've indicted one recently, or uh, invite, indict the head of some corporation or something. Uh, in each case, you're talking about indicting powerful people. But traditionally, in the Department of Justice, among those who think about 
separation of powers and about the American political uh, system in general, there have been seen as being special considerations that apply when a new administration, new federal administration, is thinking of prosecuting an old. So uh, to the topic at hand then, uh, whether or not there is overwhelming evidence uh, regarding uh, uh, President Trump's activities uh, on and on and leading up to uh, January sixth, that's certainly debatable. the The question uh, before us really is what the norm ought to be for this kind of uh, misconduct, if if it if it could be proven uh, uh, simply and uh, cleanly in a court of law. So. What is the norm that concerns you, that concerns many others about, uh, or what is the concern about a norm uh, shifting from, well, we don't prosecute this kind of thing because we don't want X to occur. So X is what? Let's talk about that because it's a norm, so far as I know, that has gone on for a long time and now admittedly. Aaron Burr was prosecuted. He was only a vice president. Pretty clearly, there has been suspicion of illegality by presidents before now, and yet it has been surprisingly rare for there to be major prosecutions of a former administration. And from a lot of the lawyers that I talked to who spent time around the relevant government agencies, they recognize, look, this is a norm. It has been a bipartisan norm. Um, the um, and it recognizes a number of different things. Let me start with one of the ones that I think is will occur to a lot of people, which is it would be easy to get into a cycle of prosecuting your predecessors to the hills. You're angry at them. They just ran a nasty campaign to stay in office. You beat them. Go after them. Make them sorry. And after all, you can prove that they did do this and this other thing over here. Uh, and then the cycle continues. When their side beats yours, why shouldn't they treat you exactly the same way? And then you get to a system in which it becomes expected and predictable that a change of administration will result in at least an attempt to put behind bars some of the people in the old. Now, of course, that does happen in many countries. It has not been a characteristic of the United States. And I think among the worries are that it will lead to worsening polarization and the decline of the consensus generally needed to keep a two-party system going with all the cooperation between parties. But also, and this is to some extent a more modern concern, those of us at Cato know all about overcriminalization. And of course, Harvey Silverclay wrote that great book, Three Felonies a Day. And he was talking about ordinary citizens committing three felonies a day through their taxes and driving and all the different things. Well, when you are in a position like that of a president or a key aide, a whole bunch of additional laws apply to you. Some of them are kind of boring, like, you know, for all of the different disclosures and forms that you may have to fill out. Some of them are, again, boring, like how you've accounted for expenses, how you've accounted for White House property. It's so hard to know exactly what is required under all of those. And I say that because uh, plausible uh, things that could have been couched as felonies have been alleged against presidents I like, presidents you like, presidents I can't stand. There just is a 
bramble bush of different ways in which you can commit arguable crimes if you are up at that level. So add that to the previous analysis, and you find that although maybe in the 19th century some of them didn't, you know, weren't crossing any arguable laws, although that even then they, they were, uh, these days in 2022, yeah, you can probably get uh, a lot of them from the previous administration, whichever previous administration that is. So you have come to the uncomfortable conclusion that you believe that to the extent the president has given public evidence or there is there is sufficient evidence for charges, which is not to say a conviction, that they should proceed. And and given what you given what you just said about uh, the concern about the norms, how does that how does your view overcome the concern about prosecuting former presidents? I would describe that concern or that norm, call it what you will, as a presumption that can be rebutted or maybe a benefit of the doubt. It certainly has particular applications such as that if the law is unclear or if it's if the facts are sufficiently unclear, or even maybe if the jury saleability is unclear, you would resolve those. You'd give the benefit of the doubt in favor of not prosecuting an administration. And I still think that each of those things needs to be considered by prosecutors under the process that we summarize as prosecutorial discretion, which is a complicated one. But but these presumptions are not universal in sufficiently extreme circumstances, uh, there can be uh, enough weight in the other side of the scale that uh, you overcome the presumption. And in this case, I draw on several different areas. First is the seriousness of the conduct. We mentioned expense accounts. You know, we, we mentioned paperwork errors. Well, this ain't that. Uh, <laughs> the January 6th committee made clear, although we knew before, if charges can be proven regarding trying to stay in office after having lost an election, that's extraordinarily serious. It's very central to the core of what we expect every president and every administration to live up to, even if they're not living up to some of the peripheral stuff. The consequences for the country of a successful attempt to stay in office despite losing are extraordinarily grave. So, so you've got that uh, for one. A second one is the concept uh, you might call civic peace. And I think this uh, is woven through the norm. Uh, you don't want a cycle to build up of each new administration prosecuting the lust, in part because that sends you in a direction away from civic peace. It sends you toward ever deeper divisions, toward a feeling that the stakes in politics already, you know, seen as apocalyptic anyway, include whether or not you will spend your days in jail. And it has even been argued, I think plausibly, that if you raise the stakes by plausibly threatening that people will go to jail if they lose an election, that you incentivize the type of coup activity that we're talking about. Because if staying out of jail is the new consequence rather than just spending some years out of power, maybe you go ahead and take the president's call and do what he says next time you are one of these officials. So all of those things are what I call the civic peace component of the norm of generally not prosecuting. But they're different here. They're different in part because, as I say in a, in a piece that I wrote on this, they're different because if you are trading off perfect justice against civic peace, you ought to be getting the civic peace. And 
people point to the Nixon pardon, and for younger listeners, and I think I was a senior in college then or something, but Nixon was found pretty dead to rights. Most people believed that he had violated criminal laws. He resigned. His successor, Gerald Ford, his vice president, then pardoned him. So we never found out for sure. We, he was never put before a jury. And there was a debate then, which has continued to this day, about whether sparing the country the wounds of a criminal trial was something that it was appropriate for Ford to consider, uh, whether or not the wound of seeing that justice was not done was, on, on the contrary, just as bad or worse. But one thing, like the Nixon pardon or don't like it, Nixon's conduct then almost immediately settled into that of a would-be or, or an actual, depending on how you view him, elder statesman in which he uh, dispensed relatively benign observations, you know, made himself as a, available as a, uh, an advisor to every subsequent president, uh, spoke about foreign policy. And in other words, whatever threat of division had been at its peak at the resignation and the country was extraordinarily agitated then, Nixon was himself doing his best to calm it down perhaps in hopes of being treated kindly by history, perhaps for other reasons, like wanting a quiet life, who, who is to know? But that obviously has not been an option offered to us in the last couple of years. Just to characterize your view, you are not of the let justice be done, even if the heavens fall. That is not your view. It is, it is balancing interests, legitimate interests. <laughs> In this case, yes. In in this case, I would keep an eye on the heavens because I don't want them to fall. Uh, you know, you can point to other legal situations, perhaps involving an individual standing before justice. You know, in, in some other instance where you need to let them go, even that though the, the heavens fall. In this case, it's a prudential matter. It's a a weighing of a number of different prudential things. And the question is not whether to go after him especially hard, but rather to take away a benefit that he gets and and treat him. The the way other defendants would be treated. I am not arguing for treating him more harshly or with less process or presumptions of innocence than other defendants get. I'm arguing that we may need to overcome the practical tradition of giving him better treatment. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We spoke last week. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.